0: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light.
2: And away we go, episode 63 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, May 14th, 2021. Happy Friday. Big D.C. sports weekend coming up. Capitals in the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Wizards hopefully clinching the final spot in the Eastern Conference play-in tournament. That did not happen on Thursday night. The Chicago Bulls beat the Toronto Raptors 114-102. So the Wizards magic number it remains one on doubles. Uh, but also this weekend, the Washington football team conducting a rookie minicamp. Yes, it is rookie minicamp weekend. The minicamp actually getting going on Friday. You have picked a good edition of the show to listen to. Although, who am I kidding? Every installment of the show is worth listening to. It's like pizza and a few other things. There's no such thing as the thing being bad. Anyway, good to have you with us. Uh, I have for you a preview of Washington football team rookie minicamp that's coming up next segment. Only this podcast will give you a preview of rookie minicamp. Those are the depths to which we drill when it comes to giving you the WFT content that you crave. Although actually there were on Thursday, a few items of news regarding the rookie minicamp. Also, we will conduct a special discussion regarding the Washington football team. Ron Rivera recently opened up about his current philosophy on franchise quarterbacks. This explains a lot about this offseason. This has not gotten enough attention. We will explore coming up shortly. Uh, game one for the Capitals against the Boston Bruins, a Capital One arena in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs is on Saturday night at 7.15. I'll give you a preview of and prediction for the series and talk about it with one of the best, Peter Hassett, co-founder of Russian Machine, Never Breaks, the great Capitals blog. Peter is one of the smartest guys you'll ever hear talk hockey. You know that I'm big into analytics. Hockey makes so much more sense when you learn about the analytics of the sport. If you're one of these people who doesn't understand hockey, I hear you. The sport can be confusing and random and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. How am I supposed to get into this? The analytics help out a lot. Peter understands that part of the sport well. He's a huge Caps fan and so talking Caps with him, is always a lot of fun. Also on the show, I'll talk Nationals, a win. Yes, an actual win for the Nats on Thursday afternoon. Five won the final over the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park to avoid a three-game sweep. Patrick Corbin was outstanding. Kyle Schwarber and Josh Bell each hit a two-run homer in a four-run first. Who were these guys? Where did all that come from? It was great to see. I'll give you my usual analysis of the Nats later in the show. So I have to tell you, I ended up getting walloped by my second COVID-19 vaccine shot. I told you that I got my second shot on Wednesday. I got Moderna, or is it Moderna? I've heard it both ways. Anyway, I got that second shot late Wednesday morning. Was fine the rest of the day. Was mostly fine while taping Thursday's installment of the podcast late Wednesday night slash early Thursday morning. But as if the COVID-19 vaccine gods knew what they were doing, Right as I was wrapping up the taping of Thursday's show, I started declining, and the decline was steep, and the decline was quick, and I pounded some black coffee because once you go black, you never go back, at least when it comes to coffee, and I went to the gym as I normally do, and I got the workout in. You should be proud of me. I got the workout in, but the decline, man, was in full effect, and so I'd say for like 12 hours, I was in rough shape. Okay, so I told you on Thursday's installment of the podcast that I was doing just fine off the second shot, and I was, but that changed, okay? Maybe I got too cocky. Maybe I shouldn't have been doing the Deion Sanders high step down the sideline, but man, uh, major chills, major achiness. It was not fun, and I'm sure many of you uh, know exactly what I'm talking about here, but I'm better now. I did, though, want to share that with you. I did wonder for at least a bit whether I'd be able to do this show that I'm doing right now, but then I said to myself, stop that. I gave myself a virtual smack in the face like one of the great scenes in the movie The Godfather.
1: You can act like a man. What's the matter
2: with you? Exactly, act like a man. I love that when the Don does that in The Godfather. Oh, by the way, while we're mentioning COVID-19, how about what the CDC declared on Thursday? The C to the D to the C. People fully vaccinated against COVID-19 do not need... To wear masks or practice social distancing indoors or outdoors, except under certain circumstances. So said the director of the U.S. centers for disease control and prevention on Thursday. There we go. Getting back to normal. Now all we need to do is prevent pipelines from being cyber attacked and we'll be rolling. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of feedback recently regarding the Washington football team, including the schedule. I got this tweet from Alex Kinter. He said, would be curious to hear what you think that opening day crowd at FedEx field will look like in week one. Still ghost town? How many Chargers fans show up? Could it be one of the best home crowds we've seen since 2017? Great question. Hard to say. I mean, we know pre-pandemic, the Washington football team wasn't exactly killing it when it came to filling up FedEx Field with Washington fans. But I think two things. Number one, a lot of people like the direction of the team right now. The team has not arrived. The team has not conquered. There's still a ways to go. But Ron Rivera has a very high approval rating in this area. The team is coming off an NFC East championship. There is excitement for the upcoming season. So I'd like to think you'll have some passion, some fervor for this upcoming Washington football team season when it comes to people wanting to go to games. And when it comes to the pandemic stuff, I mean, like I just said, CDC just said on Thursday, if you're fully vaccinated, no more wearing masks or practicing social distancing indoors or outdoors, except under certain circumstances. So I know some are reluctant to get back to normal and, you know, everyone's different. I'm not here to start judging people on how they view this thing. I mean, obviously, if you have a bunch of preexisting conditions, you're going to be maybe a little more cautious than a 22 year old who's got you know nothing to worry about in terms of his or her health. But yeah, I'd like to think that FedEx Field will be pretty packed. I hope so. I hope all of our teams draw well now that stuff is opening back up. Now, you mentioned a bunch of Chargers fans being there. I mean, you do have to wonder about that. That's been the case, right? Opposing team fans invading FedEx Field. And you know, it's not just like an Eagles thing or a Giants thing or even like a Steelers thing. The Miami Dolphins. I will never forget that. The week one loss for Washington to Miami in the 2015 season. Dolphins fans overtaking. FedEx field. So who knows? Maybe there's an influx of Chargers fans, but I'd like to think you'll have a healthy, robust crowd for week one against Justin Herbert and the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx field. Email from Darren. He says, hi, Al. Hi. In light of the new WFT schedule with the five intra-divisional games at the end of the season, I thought I'd note that I've wanted something like that for a while now. I think it should be standard practice to schedule a final intra-divisional tour at the tail end of every NFL schedule, it would, I believe, maximize the likelihood that games near the end of the season would be meaningful for the greatest number of teams. Think of how many extra teams over the years would have been able to maintain a sliver of hope knowing that they had the three divisional games they could theoretically have swept to close out the season. The downside would be that you'd lose some interdivisional games between playoff-bound squads, but the trade-off would be that more games would be meaningful and exciting overall what do you think? P.S. I still think you are overrating the importance of when the buy is. I suspect that it barely matters at all. Yes, Darren and I had a nice, pleasant back and forth via email a few weeks back on whether when a team's buy week matters or not. I do think it matters. I know Bill Barnwell, uh, then of Grantland, did a study on this. This is going back years. And he kind of found that it doesn't matter when your buy is. But that was many years ago. I just think, logically speaking, you want a mid-season buy. I don't think, like, if you don't have that, that you have no shot but I'm just thinking about bigger, faster, stronger in the NFL injuries happening, uh, I think you are at a disadvantage if your buy comes in week four as opposed to say week nine, especially now with a 17 game season. But I, it would be good for someone to actually look into that and see if the data backs up that premise. Uh, look, with your idea, you know endorsing essentially what the NFL has done here, loading up, especially with Washington's schedule, nothing but NFC East games over the final five games of Washington season. I I don't disagree with anything you said. I think the danger in that, though, is teams will be at the mercies of where they're at from an injury standpoint, where they're at from availability standpoints, where they're at from how they're playing standpoints late in seasons. So, like, if you're rolling early in the season, middle of the season, but your divisional games don't come until the end of the season, and say your starting quarterback suffers a season-ending knee injury in Week 12, well, you're in a lot of trouble come the end of that season. So that's why I think it is more equitable to spread out the games over the course of the year. But from a drama standpoint, you are correct. Everyone is in the mix, in the hunt, if you load up on divisional games toward the ends of seasons. There's no doubt about that. And look, for a while now, the NFL has done the thing where every team, at the very least, is ending its regular season with an intra divisional game. But this is something different. I mean, this, I, this has never been the case before. Washington having what it has five consecutive divisional games to close out the regular season. I suspected the following was the case, got confirmation of this on Thursday. The Washington football team's final five games being against NFC East teams, that's the first time that any team has closed with such a stretch since the NFL expanded to 32 teams and the eight division format in 2002. This has never happened before. A team in this modern NFL, right, since the realignment of '2 having five consecutive intra-divisional games to close out a season. So we'll see if it ends up being good or bad. I mean, if Washington has to deal with a lot in the way of early and mid-season injury and gets healthy down the stretch and is rolling down the stretch as so many Ron Rivera coach teams have done over the years, then that's going to be a good thing. Five NFC East games over the final five weeks of the 2021 regular season. But what if the opposite is true? What if Washington looks great over its first 12 games of the season and then Ryan Fitzpatrick gets hurt? or Chase Young gets hurt, or just things start to fall apart, and then you have five of your six NFC East games. Well, then you're in trouble. Then it's not so great having the schedule backloaded with nothing but NFC East games, but we shall see. Email from Eric Moore. Eric had a very creative uh, thing that he executed here. So writes Eric, hey Al, love the podcast. Thank you, Eric. Instead of doing the traditional predicting of the wins and losses based on the schedule, I thought I would do something a little different. And what Eric did was, he dropped each game, each opponent, into one of five categories. And he had as the categories cakewalks, i.e. definite wins, confidence, i.e. should wins, not scareds, i.e. 50-50 games, tough games, i.e. should lose, and Hail Marys, i.e. definite losses. And the way Eric broke this down, he has two cakewalks, both games against the <laughs> Philadelphia Eagles, two confidence, uh, those games being... The games at the Atlanta Falcons and at the Carolina Panthers, eight not scareds. So eight 50-50 games, three tough games, those games being at the Buffalo Bills, at the Green Bay Packers. I'm assuming if Aaron Rodgers is still the quarterback and home to the Seattle Seahawks and then two Hail Marys and the two Hail Marys are home to the Kansas City Chiefs and home to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Eric writes the 2021 record will be eight and a quarter wins. Eight and three quarters losses, right? 17 games. So I think I think it's a creative way of looking at the schedule. Hard to disagree with a lot of what you say, but of course, who the heck knows? Like maybe the cakewalks end up being the games against, I don't know, the Giants. Or maybe that game at the Packers ends up being a nothing game because Aaron Rodgers has long since been traded and he gets traded to a team that Washington isn't even playing on the 2021 regular season schedule. Like, who knows? It's all a guessing game when it comes to who will be what in an NFL season, which, of course, is one of the beauties of talking about the NFL. Well, John Grandland of Real Broker, you could say he's like the Aaron Rodgers of local real estate, just without the diva-like behavior. Hey, maybe John Grandland should host Jeopardy. Anyway, John G, he is next level. He has unique systems, a list of ready buyers, and the ultimate guarantee, John Grandland promises that if he can't sell your home at a price that you agree on, he will buy your home himself and he will back this up in writing. Also, John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from. So you can go shopping for your discount. Essentially, you can literally choose your discount, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. Zero commission. I've been telling you about this. Some conditions do apply. Here's what James, who was having a hard time selling his condo had to say about John Grandland. Quote, my wife and I would highly recommend John for placing your home on the market. With our previous broker, we had our condo on the market for three months without an offer. In our second attempt to sell our home, we made a wiser decision and chose John Grandland. After about a week on the market, we already had two offers. He's a real pro, has a keen understanding of the business and the latest marketing techniques to get a property sold. End quote. Again, John Grandland is like A-Rod out there, making something out of nothing on a broken play, turning a broken play into a 55 yard touchdown bomb. Find out what John Grandland can do for you. You have nothing to lose. To learn more and to get the value of your home, visit this website, John G. Sells for free com. That's John G sells for free dot com. Like I said, zero commission. Ask John Granland about that. Or better yet, give John Granland a call now. Tell him that Al Goldie sent you. Understand that you calling John Grandland helps out this podcast greatly. John Granland is a huge supporter of this podcast. Big Washington football team fan, big Nats fan as well. The phone number is 703-537-6747. That's 703 537 67, 47. John Grandland of Real Broker. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. So, the Washington football team is conducting a rookie mini camp on Friday and Saturday. Yes, actual practices will be taking place at the team facility in Ashburn. What is technically the Innova Sports Performance Center. I'm sorry, I just continue to find that hilarious that Innova doesn't want to be involved with the team anymore. Presumably, because one of the former minority owners Dwight Shar is a major financial benefactor of Anova and remember Shar and Dan Snyder grew to hate each other Danny accused Shar of financially backing the smear campaign of Danny and yet Anova is in bed with Washington for one more year so the team facility has as its title the Anova Sports Performance Center but anyway rookie minicamp practice on Friday morning beginning at 10:45 practice on Saturday morning beginning at 1045. And Ron Rivera will be speaking via Zoom press conference after each practice. So we will have Ron Rivera sound to go through on Monday's installment of the podcast, piping fresh thoughts from Don Ron to chew on for Monday's show. 16 players will be participating in Washington's rookie minicamp. Among those players, the 10 2021 draft picks, the undrafted free agent who Washington signed, the running back, Jarrett Patterson, out of Buffalo, Quarterback Steven Montez, who was, of course, with Washington last season, uh, during which he was an undrafted rookie free agent out of Colorado. And the tight end, Samis Reyes, trying to make the switch from basketball to football, despite having never played football at any meaningful level. Now, we on Thursday had two pieces of news regarding the rookie minicamp. First of all, Washington did have a bit of a COVID thing pop up. The team was supposed to also have the rookie minicamp five tryout players, However, one of those players tested positive for COVID-19. So now none of those players will be participating in the rookie minicamp. I'm not sure why one guy testing positive for COVID means that the other four guys can't participate in the rookie minicamp, but that is the case. Rookie tryout players do rarely make teams, but still you'd like to be able to work out guys who you want to work out. Keep in mind too, Washington has only signed the one undrafted free agent, the Buffalo running back, Jared Patterson. So perhaps these rookie tryout players would have had more of a shot than normal. Maybe Washington can work him out at some other point, but uh, disappointing for those guys. Second straight year, right, in which Washington under Ron has not signed many undrafted free agents. There's a strategy to this. Ron talked about this in an interview on Mitch and Finley on 106.7 The Fan on May 3rd, said that Washington strategically made that trade with the Philadelphia Eagles on day three of the 2021 draft for six and seventh round picks in the 2021 draft in exchange for a fifth round pick in the 2022 draft, in part to get the players who Washington wanted as opposed to having to compete for them potentially as undrafted free agents and also potentially have to pay them more as undrafted free agents as opposed to sixth or seventh round draft picks. So there is sort of a method to the madness of Washington over the last two offseasons now not having signed many in the way of undrafted free agents. The other piece of news on Thursday regarding Washington's rookie minicamp, all 10 of Washington's 2021 draft picks have been signed. Uh, that didn't take long, did it? Uh, not like we thought that it would. The rookie wage scale has changed everything when it comes to, especially first round picks signing. Like, you almost never see holdouts anymore. But how about that? All 10 Washington draft picks in the 2021 draft have signed contracts going into this rookie minicamp. The team announcing this on Thursday night. So good news there. So I was thinking about Washington's 2021 draft class. Which of the picks are most likely to make immediate impacts? beyond Washington's first round pick, Jamin Davis. I mean, Jamin Davis is the obvious one. He profiles as a very likely candidate for defensive rookie of the year. He certainly seemingly is going to be in position to do that. Like we'll see what he actually ends up being as a player and we'll see if he stays healthy. But Jamin Davis, the Kentucky linebacker, long-armed athletic freak, tackling machine at Kentucky, someone who very much seems to fit Ron Rivera's culture reset, someone who very much seems to have a good chance of being a three-down linebacker. And someone who, given Washington's linebacker situation, figures to play a lot, okay? Like, I mean, Washington's linebacking core, you got Davis, you have Cole Holcomb, you have John Bostic, and like, that's kind of it at this point in terms of likely viable candidates to play a lot for Washington at the linebacker position in 2021. So for Jamin Davis, the table is set for him to eat and eat well, in his 2021 rookie season. So that's an easy answer, right? Which Washington draft selection in the 2021 draft is going to make an immediate impact? Like, Jamin Davis clearly is number one in that regard. But who else? Well, you have the second round pick, Samuel Cosme, the offensive tackle out of Texas. He could end up playing a bunch, but now that Washington is signing Charles Leno Jr., already has Cornelius Lucas, already has Jaron Christian, To whatever extent, he's still a factor. It is possible Cosme doesn't play a lot in 2021. We'll see. I mean, with Samuel Cosby, the book on him is freakish athleticism, but there are some technique things that need to be cleaned up. I talked about that with former Washington tight end Logan Paulson, who joined me on Wednesday's installment of the podcast, episode 61. What about Washington's first third round selection, the Minnesota corner, Benjamin St. Juice? If you have anything in the way of injury or ineffectiveness when it comes to Washington's top three corners, William Jackson, the third, Kendall Fuller, Jimmy Morland, yeah, we may see a whole lot of Benjamin St. Juice in his rookie season. But if we have what we had last season, which is great health at the cornerback position, and hopefully we do knock on wood, I'm not sure that Benjamin St. Juice plays a lot this upcoming season. Now, I know teams are a nickel of buns, but especially with the abundance of safety options that Washington has, I think it's going to be hard for St. Juice to see the field if William Jackson III, Kendall Fuller, Jimmy Moreland are healthy and all playing well. But Benjamin St. Juice is a very intriguing prospect. First of all, Jack Del Rio said in that conversation with Julie Donaldson of the Washington football team last week that St. Juice will be playing corner for Washington. He is not necessarily an athletic freak along the lines of so many others who Washington took in the 2021 draft, but St. Juice is a bigger corner. And Washington does not have a lot in the way of size at corner. St. Juice at the Minnesota Pro Day, measuring as being 6-3 and a quarter, two hundred two pounds. So he's long. He can be physical. You know, you think about someone who can play tight press man coverage. St. Juice in theory can do that. Washington in theory will be doing more of that in twenty twenty one with William Jackson, the third on board. What about Washington's other third round pick in the twenty twenty one draft? The North Carolina receiver, diami Brown. Now it is a crowded bunch for Washington at receiver, no doubt. So it may be tricky for Deami To make an impact in his rookie season. But then again, maybe not. I mean, if he's really good, he will see the field. And we know that Washington is making a concerted effort to become more explosive in the passing game, as should be the case, because Washington has been borderline impotent for years when it comes to explosive plays in the passing game. Dayami Brown, another athletic freak, North Carolina Pro Day running a 4.44 second 40-yard dash. You have with him and Curtis Samuel and Terry McLaurin and Antonio Gibson, all of this great speed now in effect for you offensively. De'Ami Brown, a very productive receiver at North Carolina. Might he be a guy who ends up making a big impact in his rookie season for Washington? I think the tight end, John Bates, has a great shot at making an immediate impact, right? Yes, he's a fourth-round pick. No, he didn't do much in the way of catching passes at Boise State, but he profiles as a mother of a blocker, which is something Washington has sorely lacked For so much of the last, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years here. John Bates at the Boise State Pro Day, measuring as being 6'5 and 3'8, 250 pounds. He, among tight ends in the 2021 draft for Pro Football Focus, was both the number two run blocker and number two pass blocker. He does have hands, right? There's a thing that's been noted many times already. ESPN NFL Draft analyst Todd McShay on day three of the 2021 draft saying that Bates catches balls as well as any tight end in the 2021 draft class. Not named Kyle Pitts, but you know, Bates figures to really make his money as a blocker. And so if he can do that, I would say he's going to play quite a bit. I mean, just because you're not thrown to a lot doesn't mean you're not playing a lot as a tight end. And so I think Bates very much so could end up having an immediate impact for Washington in his rookie season. I think it's going to be tough for Washington's fifth round pick, the Cincinnati safety, Derek Forrest, to make an immediate impact. It is a crowded field for Washington at safety. Forrest figures to play a lot on special teams and certainly has a willingness to play on special teams. He's another one of these athletic freaks, but I think it's going to be dicey for him if everyone stays healthy uh, to play a lot defensively. Uh, I hope the sixth round pick, Cameron Cheeseman, the long snapper of Michigan, ends up making an immediate impact because otherwise uh, you have a problem spending a six round pick on a long snapper and that long snapper not playing for you. Uh, I still don't like that Washington did this, but whatever. It's a six round pick. I mean, I'm not losing sleep over it. There are many good players who are found in sixth and seventh rounds of draft. I would never spend a pick on a special team specialist, even a day three pick like what Washington did with Cheeseman. But technically speaking, he should be impactful in his rookie season because he should be the Washington long snapper this upcoming season and hopefully... For many years to come. What I think is interesting about Washington's draft class when it comes to potential immediate impact is the two seventh round edge rushers who Washington took. Yeah, they're seventh round picks, but given the way things are right now for Washington at edge rusher, I think each guy actually has a chance to play and maybe play a decent amount this upcoming season. So talking about the Baylor edge rusher, William Bradley King, and the Penn State edge rusher, Shaka Tony, obviously, it is the Chase Young and Montez sweatshow when it comes to edge rusher for Washington. But it's not like each guy plays on 100% of Washington's defensive snaps, game in, game out. And even if each guy does play more this upcoming season, which I would be totally fine with, you still are going to have plenty of looks where you have more than two edge rushers on the field. And so to that end, a guy like a William Bradley King, a guy like a Shaka Tony, if he makes the team and is showing he can play It's going to be out there, at least some, in the 2021 season. I mean, beyond Chase Young and Montez Sweat, Washington doesn't have really anything in the way of substantial edge-rushing depth. Assuming Ryan Kerrigan isn't resigned, and maybe he is, I would not be against that, but I'm not sure he wants to come back. But if Kerrigan is gone, Ryan Anderson obviously is gone, like, you're going to need other edge rushers to put on the field. And I know you can deploy someone like, say, a Jonathan Allen potentially uh, as an edge. I mean, Washington, of course, is in nickel so often. But in obvious pass rushing circumstances, yeah, you're going to have your stud defensive lineman out there. But occasionally, you do go to your backup edge rushers. I mean, Kerrigan, as disappointed as he was in his lack of playing time in the 2020 regular season, did end up playing on close to 40% of Washington's defensive snaps. You know, we saw Washington's other 2020 round pick, James Smith Williams, play some as an edge rusher last regular season. I say other because the other was, of course, Cameron Curl. But if William Bradley King and Shaka Tony show that they can play, then I actually think they will play this upcoming season. And again, these are two more athletic freaks. I mean, Washington loaded up on freakish athletes in this 2021 draft class. And so if those guys can live up to that athleticism, then here we go. They should be given some opportunities to see what they can do the upcoming year. Chase Young, Montez, Sweat are going to lead the way at Edge, but it's not just going to be those two and nobody else at Edge in the upcoming season. I think it's going to be tough for Washington's final pick in the 2021 draft, the BYU receiver Dax Milne to make the team. He was though productive at BYU and he was the number one target for Zach Wilson at BYU this past season. The other guy to be thinking about is the undrafted rookie running back, Jared Patterson at a Buffalo. Jared Patterson, look, he's a smaller guy. He, you know, he's not an athletic freak necessarily. Five, six and a half is the height that he was measured at at the Buffalo pro day. But Jared Patterson was some kind of productive running back in college. Three consecutive thousand yard rushing seasons for Buffalo over his three seasons for the Bulls. He averaged 6.11 yards per carry, totaled 52 rushing touchdowns, even in his shortened 2020 junior season. The guy had a 1,000 yards, a 1,072 rushing yards and 19 rushing touchdowns over just five games. Washington, in theory, is set at running back because all three guys from last season are back for this coming season in Antonio Gibson, J.D. McKissick, and Peyton Barber. But you never know who gets hurt. You never know what else may arise. And a guy like Jared Patterson, if he shows he can play is going to have an opportunity to, to, at the very least, make Washington's practice squad. I will make a prediction right now. Jarrett Patterson will be an August hero for Washington. We just talked about August heroes off the tragic passing of Colt Brennan. Jarrett Patterson profiles so well as like another Marcus Mason type, a running back who in a preseason catches fire and becomes all the rage and people love the guy, becomes a fan favorite, et cetera. I would not be stunned by that at all. Smaller guy, productive guy, uh, someone who can certainly rack up the yardage. Uh, very good is Jared Patterson, by the way, when it comes to yardage after contact, when it comes to forcing missed tackles. He will be fun to watch come the preseason. And he's a local. He went to St. Vincent Pilate High School in Laurel, Maryland. Jared Patterson can produce, just like one of the great supporters of this podcast, Dr. George Verghese. Dr. George Verghese is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist, and Mohs surgeon, and he wants you to be aware of something very special that he and the Institute offer. So first of all, the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special in cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT really is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. Having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. If you or someone you love is dealing with skin cancer, be aware that SRT may be right for you. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area. And SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call this phone number, 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301 301- or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's mid Atlanticskin.com. Dr. George Bergese in the Mid Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid Atlantic region. All right, I've been wanting to talk to you about something. And this Friday installment of the podcast is a good show. In which to talk about this something. Ron Rivera has recently opened up about the way that he views the quarterback position. So we on last Friday's show, episode 58, got into why Washington did not take a quarterback in the 2021 draft. We on this Friday's show now are going to explore what Ron Rivera, what Don Ron truly is thinking at quarterback. First of all, the comments. We've had two recent instances of Ron opening up about the way that he views the quarterback position. The first instance was Ron in an installment of the Chris Collinsworth podcast that dropped on May 4th. Ron, in talking about Washington, not having traded up to take a quarterback in the first round of the 2021 NFL draft, admitted that Washington, quote, really did, end quote, consider doing that, but later added the following. Take a listen.
0: And I'll say this. This was one of the things that we talked about, too, is other than Tom Brady, who's won multiple? You know, well, you can say Peyton, you can say Eli, but then who else? You know, you look at the other guys that have won them. There are a lot of one-timers. And and what do those one-timers have in, com- in, in common? Well, you know, they're they're guys that were very efficient. They managed the game. They didn't turn it over a lot. And they made plays when they had to. So we're, we're just wondering, if, is, is, is that the other formula? If you're fortunate enough to find this guy, you ride him. But if you don't. And you find these guys, what says you can't win with them? Other than Tom Brady, think about this. Right? So we, we went through that back and forth. Now, I'm not saying that if, if if the right guy in our mind is there, that we don't ride with him. So we'll see. All right. So Ron's saying there, quote, you look at the
2: other guys that have won M. talking about Super Bowls, talking about guys beyond Tom Brady and the Manning brothers. There are a lot of one-timers. And what do those one-timers have in common? Well, they're guys that were very efficient. They managed the game. They didn't turn it over a lot. And they made plays when they had to. So we're just wondering if, is that the other formula? End quote. Now, Ron then essentially repeated these comments in a column by NFL insider Albert Breer on SI.com that came out now two Thursdays ago, May 6th. Ron in that column said the following, about Washington having not traded up to take a quarterback in the first round of the 2021 NFL draft. Quote, the other thing too, this is the other thing to think about now. Go back and look at who's won the Super Bowl the last several years. How many of those guys are repeat quarterbacks other than Tom Brady? I mean, you see Nick Foles win a Super Bowl. Good for Nick. That's outstanding. But let's understand they had a good football team around him if you have a good football team around the quarterback, what's to say you have to have Brady? Now, it'd be great to have a Brady-type guy, but if it's not out there, why are we going to force it, end quote? I know that head coaches lie all the time, but one thing that's become pretty clear about Ron Rivera is that he is more or less a straight shooter. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say he's never lied to us in any of these press conference settings or interview settings. I'm sure he has. I still think the whole thing about Benching Dwayne Haskins to go for the division was a cover for Ron just being fed up with Dwayne Haskins and his bad work ethic last season. But I think by and large, Ron tells you how he feels. And I think in these recent comments, he's telling you how he feels, how he thinks about the notion of the franchise quarterback. The philosophy being espoused by Don Ron in these comments is yeah, it's great if you have a truly elite franchise quarterback, but it's not like you have to have a truly elite franchise quarterback, to win a Super Bowl. Well, is he right? Sort of. Take a look at the last decade of Super Bowls. So those for the 2011 season through the 2020 season. And I think in the NFL, it's important to look at recent history, especially because the game has changed so much. The league has changed so much. And that's not to say that you shouldn't look beyond the decade. But I think things that happened more than 10 years ago have less relevance than things that happened within the last 10 years. Just because, again, things are so different now. More of a passing league, rookie wage scale, philosophies when it comes to offense and defense, etc. The last decade of quarterbacks who made Super Bowls really is a true mix of elite and non-elite quarterbacks. And it's tricky, right? Because in a moment, you may think someone is elite, but as time goes on, you come to find, well, no, he actually wasn't that elite. And also it can flip. In a moment, you can think a guy isn't elite, but as time goes on, you come to find him as being elite. So the truth is you can frame recent NFL history however you want when it comes to whether you have to have an elite quarterback or even just a franchise quarterback to win a Super Bowl. Like you look at the last decade, right? right, we'll work backwards. This past season, Super Bowl 55, Tom Brady beat Patrick Mahomes. Okay, two stud elite franchise quarterbacks. Previous season, Super Bowl 54, Patrick Mahomes beat Jimmy Garoppolo. Mahomes, obviously, truly elite franchise quarterback Garoppolo. Not so much. Super Bowl 53, Tom Brady beat Jared Goff. Brady, truly elite franchise quarterback Goff. Not so much. Super Bowl 52, Nick Foles beat Tom Brady. Brady, obviously, truly elite franchise quarterback Foles. Not so much. Super Bowl 51, Tom Brady beat Matt Ryan. Two franchise quarterbacks there, Brady, elite. Ryan, you know, maybe you can debate with the different seasons. Was Ryan elite that season or not? But he was certainly very good, Ryan was, in the 2016 season. And he, at worst, is a top, what, 12 quarterback over his career? Like, he's been really good. So I think those two guys qualify as franchise stud quarterbacks for sure. Super Bowl 50 is especially interesting. Peyton Manning beating Cam Newton. Like, if you just read the names, you'd say, well, those are two franchise quarterbacks right there in Peyton Manning's case, right? Truly a lead all-time great. But Peyton Manning, remember, was shot. In that 2015 season in which he and the Denver Broncos won the Super Bowl. So Peyton Manning winning the Super Bowl for the 2015 season is actually an example of teams not needing to have truly elite franchise quarterbacks to win Super Bowls. Cam Newton that season played out of his mind. He was elite. He was a franchise quarterback uh, that season. Uh, Super Bowl 49, Tom Brady beat Russell Wilson, two truly elite franchise quarterbacks. Super Bowl 48, Russell Wilson beat Peyton Manning. Uh, Manning at that point was outstanding. Uh, Wilson and Manning, two truly elite franchise quarterbacks. How about Super Bowl 47? Looking back upon the Harbowl? Joe Flacco beating Colin Kaepernick. Uh, You wouldn't say either guy was a truly elite quarterback. Flacco was elite that postseason. Kaepernick was elite that year, but neither guy ended up being elite as time went on. And then Super Bowl 46, Eli Manning beating Tom Brady. Brady, obviously, truly elite franchise quarterback. Eli, that was the debate. Elite. E-L-I. Did Eli stand for elite? And that went on for years. And for a while, people said, yeah, he is elite. He won two Super Bowls, beat Brady in those two Super Bowls. But you tell me now, looking at Eli Manning's career, was he an elite quarterback? I don't think so. I think he was a franchise quarterback. Uh, I think he's probably going to make the Pro Football Hall of Fame because he played in New York. And God help us that we don't christen everything that's ever happened in New York as the greatest thing of all time. Uh, but I don't think he is a Hall of Fame worthy quarterback. The two Super Bowl winning postseasons are all time, but there's a body of work that says he's not a true all time great quarterback. He was a franchise quarterback. He was not, though, to me, an elite quarterback. So like I said, you can kind of frame recent NFL history however you want to. But what is clear and what is undeniable is in especially recent, recent NFL history. So talking the last, say, four Super Bowls, three of the last four Super Bowls, Each has featured one quarterback who was not an elite quarterback, not even a franchise quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo in Super Bowl 54, Jared Goff in Super Bowl 53, Nick Foles in Super Bowl 52. All of this, I think, further explains Washington not having traded up in the first round of the 2021 draft to take a quarterback. Washington not having traded up in the first round of the 2021 draft to take a quarterback starts with Washington having not truly loved Justin Fields or Mac Jones. I talked about that a lot on last Friday's show, episode 58, and getting into why Washington did not take a quarterback in the 2021 draft, right? There's a difference between liking a quarterback and loving a quarterback, and Washington clearly did not love Justin Fields and not love Mac Jones. But we now can add to this, Ron believing that, yeah, it's great if you have a truly elite franchise quarterback, but it's not like you have to have one to win a Super Bowl. And so this brings us to the most significant thing that Washington did do at quarterback this offseason, sign Ryan Fitzpatrick. There are many things to get into with Washington having signed Ryan Fitzpatrick. One of the things that I find especially notable is Washington signing Ryan Fitzpatrick is a definite zig while other teams are zagging. And I think there's always something to be said for this, right? When you go against the grain, When you make the contrarian play, when you try to exploit a market inefficiency, if everyone is going in one direction, there's value in you going in the other direction. In a time in which so many teams are giving up a ton to get potential franchise quarterbacks, note that word potential, not definite franchise quarterbacks, but potential franchise quarterbacks, Washington signed Ryan Fitzpatrick to a one-year $10 million contract for his age 39 season. I mean, think about that, right? In an offseason in which the San Francisco 49ers, who already had a quarterback who had made a Super Bowl in Jimmy Garoppolo, acquired the number three pick in the 2021 draft from the Miami Dolphins in exchange for the Niners' 2021 first-round pick, 2022 and 2023 first-round picks, and a 2022 compensatory third-round pick, and then used that 2021 first-round pick acquired from Miami to take the North Dakota State quarterback, Trey Lance, Washington signed Ryan Fitzpatrick to a one-year, $10 million contract for his age 39 season. In an offseason in which the Los Angeles Rams traded quarterback Jared Goff first round picks in 2022 and 2023 and a 2021 third round pick to the Detroit Lions for quarterback Matthew Stafford, Washington signed Ryan Fitzpatrick to a one-year $10 million contract for his age 39 season, right? I mean, if you add to what the Rams did in trading for Stafford, what the Rams gave up to move up from number 15 overall to number one overall in the 2016 draft to take off, the Rams in the entire Goff saga spent four first round picks, two second round picks, and three third round picks and came out of it with Matthew Stafford. Like think about all of the draft capital that the Rams have spent in recent seasons in trying to figure out quarterback Washington, again, signed Ryan Fitzpatrick to a one-year, $10 million contract for his age 39 season, zigging while other teams are zagging. The thing with Fitzpatrick, though, is, and I've pointed this out many times, but I don't think it can be pointed out enough, Ryan Fitzpatrick is a major upgrade over what Washington has had at quarterback in recent seasons. And the truth is this, if Ryan Fitzpatrick plays in 2021, as he has over the past two seasons, He's more than capable of taking Washington to the playoffs. And I say that understanding that Fitzpatrick has never made the NFL playoffs, though I would argue that he would have made the playoffs last season had the Miami Dolphins just kept him as their starter. But just look at things through the prism of the best quarterback stat that's out there, ESPN's total QBR. The Washington football team in the 2021 regular season was number 32 in the NFL, dead last in total QBR per ESPN at 39.7. When you add up all that was done at the quarterback position for Washington last regular season, no team was worse than Washington at the quarterback position in terms of team QBR. Washington's was a lowly, pathetic 39.7. Ryan Fitzpatrick finished the 2020 regular season fifth among 33 qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR at 76.9. So Washington as a team last season, when it came to total QBR, 39.7. Fitzpatrick last season, when it came to total QBR, 76.9. I mean, among those who Ryan Fitzpatrick ranked ahead in terms of total QBR last season, Drew Brees, Lamar Jackson, Russell Wilson, Tom Brady, Deshaun Watson, Justin Herbert, Kyler Murray, Matthew Stafford, And is my point that Ryan Fitzpatrick is better than all those guys? No, of course not. My point though is Ryan Fitzpatrick has played at a high level and I don't think he's gotten nearly enough credit for playing at that high level. And this wasn't just a 2020 thing. Ryan Fitzpatrick in the 2019 regular season was eighth among 30 qualified quarterbacks in the NFL in ESPN's total QBR at 68.3. Ryan Fitzpatrick has been a top 10 quarterback in the NFL over the last two seasons. The lazy take is just thinking about Ryan Fitzpatrick as if it's still 2011 or 2012 or 2015. Like, yeah, he was that guy in the past. And that's not to say that what he's done in the past, i.e. Fitz tragic and some of the interception stuff should just be totally disregarded. But the recent history is what matters more. And especially in an NFL now, in which the aging curve for quarterbacks is being totally redefined, and guys are not just playing really well deep into their 30s, if not their 40s, but you could argue in some ways peaking in their late 30s, Ryan Fitzpatrick going into his age 39 season is coming off the two best seasons of his career. So I can understand how Ron Rivera looks at all this and says all these trade-ups for all these potential franchise quarterbacks aren't working out. Ryan Fitzpatrick is coming off back-to-back really good seasons. You don't have to have a truly elite franchise quarterback to make the postseason and maybe even make a Super Bowl. I don't happen to love the quarterbacks realistically available to me in the 2021 NFL draft. Why not zig while others zag and Steinfitz Magic for one year and $10 million? And I get where Don Ron is coming from on all of this. Now, you better be right in your evaluations of those on whom you passed. So if Washington could have traded up to take Justin Fields, chose not to, and Fields ends up becoming a phenom for the Chicago Bears for years to come, well, you're going to have to answer for that. You know, if somehow a Kyle Trask or a Davis Mills or a Kellen Mond ends up killing it in future seasons and Washington clearly had the opportunity to take any one of those guys, chose not to, well, you're going to have to answer to that. But knowing what we know, looking at what we have in front of us, the Washington approach this offseason at quarterback of zig while others zag, I think there's a lot of intellect behind this. One last aspect to all of this. And this is kind of random, but I think it's notable. So the Minnesota Vikings in the 1990s and early 2000s had one of the most fascinating runs in NFL history. And this is a different NFL. So I don't know how relevant this is to what's going on right now, but I thought this is worth making mention of. The Minnesota Vikings for about a decade went with the approach essentially of, we're just going to keep finding ourselves quarterbacks who maybe aren't great, but are good enough, or older quarterbacks who used to be great and can still be good enough. And we're just going to make a bunch of postseasons and see what happens. And sure enough, that is what happened. The Vikings made a bunch of postseasons. The Minnesota Vikings, over a nine-season stretch, 1992 through 2000, made the playoffs in eight of nine seasons with seven different primary starting quarterbacks. Seven different primary QB1s. You ready for this list? Rich Gannon, 1992 in his age 27 season. Jim McMahon, 1993 in his age 34 season, Warren Moon, 1994 in his age 38 season, Brad Johnson, the future Washington quarterback, 1996 and 97 in his age 28 and age 29 seasons, Randall Cunningham, 1998 in his age 35 season, Jeff George, 1999 in his age 32 season, and Dante Culpepper, 2000 in his age 23 season. How about that nine-season stretch? You go from Rich Gannon to Jim McMahon to Warren Moon to Brad Johnson to Randall Cunningham to Jeff George to Dante Culpepper. The Vikings, in making eight playoff appearances over nine seasons, and all of this happened with Denny Green as head coach, did go just four and eight in the postseason. So it's not like the Vikings killed it, slated it with this approach. Though the Vikings did make it to two NFC Championship games, those for the 1998 and 2000 seasons. So no, this wasn't like some all-time great run for a franchise. But the run also wasn't terrible. I mean, you make a couple of NFC Championship games You know, a bounce of a ball here, some good luck there. I mean, for the 1998 Vikings team, the awful missed field goal by Gary Anderson in the NFC Championship game, he makes that and you're almost certainly looking at the Vikings being in the Super Bowl and we look back upon the 1990s slash early 2000s Vikings in a very different way. The Vikings run did happen during a time in which the NFL wasn't nearly the passing league that it has become. But you do wonder if there's a way to rent but not buy with quarterbacks and still do well, i.e. make postseasons, maybe even do well in those postseasons with veteran or stopgap measures at quarterback as opposed to spending the heavy draft capital and tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars on the position only to see it so often not work out. I mean, that is what is so jaw-dropping with what has happened here in the NFL at the quarterback position in recent years, teams are spending more and more to get quarterbacks, but more and more we're seeing the trade-ups not working out. And even when things do kind of sort of work out, teams want out from having those quarterbacks. I mean, the Rams with Golf are the classic example. The Rams give up all of this draft capital to take golf initially. He actually does get them to a Super Bowl. The Rams sign him to a big money contract extension and yet still want to end up parting ways with him and attach first round picks to him to get rid of him to get an older quarterback, but I do think a better quarterback in Matthew Stafford. So, like, how many more times do we gonna have to see this stuff? I mean, Carson Wentz, the Philadelphia Eagles gave up a lot to trade up to take Wentz, signed him to a big money contract extension, and then because his play went down the tubes this past season, Wentz gets traded for pennies on the dollar this offseason to the Indianapolis Colts. This is the environment in which we are. There's no doubt, like, if you can trade up to take a Patrick Mahomes and he becomes Patrick Mahomes, you're a golden for a decade plus to come but that's not easy to do. And if you don't think that the guy you're trading up for is gonna be that good, what about this approach that Ron Rivera has been talking up that we did see the Vikings, maybe it wasn't intentional, but ultimately take in the 1990s and early 2000s? It's tricky because with the NFL being the passing league that it is, you can certainly make the case that having a franchise quarterback has never mattered more. But at the same time, you also can argue that playing the position of quarterback has never been easier due to modern NFL rules, due to modern offensive philosophies, due to the way that the game is right now. Like, it says something that Ryan Fitzpatrick, who's been in the NFL since 2005, has had the two best seasons of his career in his age 37 and 38 seasons. That's a testament to him and his growth. But that also maybe says something about playing quarterback right now how because of the way the game is, it's actually easier to play the position than ever before. Quarterbacks are protected. Quarterbacks are throwing against defensive backs who have all kinds of handcuffs on them in terms of how they can defend opposing receivers, tight ends, and running backs. And offenses are designed now for quarterbacks to get rid of footballs quickly, for quarterbacks to make, you know, short rhythm throws, for quarterbacks to rack up completions and passing yards and to have completion percentages deep into the 60s, if not the 70s. And so if that's the way the game is now, why do you have to spend a ton in terms of draft capital and or salary cap space when maybe someone like Orion Fitzpatrick, who sneakily has been a top 10 quarterback the last two seasons, is available to you for, again, one year, $10 million. Something to think about. But regardless of where you stand on this, the fact that Ron Rivera has been so openly talking about this, I thought it was worth getting into here because I think it does help to crystallize why Washington has done as it has done at the quarterback position this offseason. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Algaldi. You can email me, the Algaldi Podcast at Yahoo.com. A DC sports spring tradition, like few others, continues on Saturday night when we have the start of yet another Capitals postseason run. Game 1 against the Boston Bruins in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs at Capital One Arena, a 7-15 start. The schedule for the series is out. Game 2 at Capital One Arena Monday night at 7:30, Game 3 at Boston Wednesday evening at 6:30, Game 4 at Boston next Friday evening at 6:30. There's not much in life that you can count on. The Caps making the Stanley Cup playoffs, you can count on. The Caps are in the postseason for a 7th consecutive season for a 13th time in 14 seasons, and for a 31st time in 38 seasons. Now, the problem, of course, has been that so many of these Capitals postseason appearances have ended in a first or second round. 27 of the Caps' 30 all-time playoff appearances have ended in a first or second round. The three exceptions, 1990, 1998, and 2018, when the Capitals won the Stanley Cup. Will 2021 be number four? A lot of storylines to this Caps Bruins series to be thinking about. First of all, where are we with the health of the Caps and the availability of two key Caps? So we had the Caps regular season ending 2 1 victory over the Boston Bruins at Capital One Arena on Tuesday night. Alex Ovechkin was back, played for just the second time in nine games, had been dealing with a lower body injury. Looked good in the game, played for exactly 19 minutes, 20 shifts, totaled a game high nine shot attempts, generated four hits. Did say after the game, during a virtual post-game press conference, that he does feel 100%. Now, was he maybe fitting? Uh, perhaps it's possible. Uh, but it was good to see Ovi back out there. And again, if you watch the game, I mean, he did look good to whatever extent that matters. Nicholas Backstrom was back in that game. He returned from a one-game absence caused by his lower body injury. So hopefully Ovi and uh, Backy are in good places going into this series. But the Caps in that regular season-ending win over the Bruins at Capital One Arena on Tuesday night, did remain without multiple key players. Defenseman Don Carlson did not play for a second consecutive game due to a lower body injury, although he on Thursday did say that he'll be good to go for Saturday, for whatever that's worth. Again, people lie with this stuff, so we'll see, but hopefully Carlson is good to go. TJ Oshie did not play uh, due to a lower body injury that was suffered in that 2-1 overtime win over the Philadelphia Flyers at Capital One Arena last Saturday night. Oshie on Thursday did get some work, but had not been cleared yet, was not expected to be on the ice for the full practice. So we'll see when it comes to TJ Oshie. And then, of course, we have the Evgeny Kuznetsov, Ilya Samsonov situations. Each guy now has missed each of the last five games. Each did not play in the first game of that stretch due to team disciplinary reasons as the players were late to a team function. And each guy since then has been out due to COVID-19 protocols. And Kuznetsov and Samsonov on Thursday did remain on the COVID-19 absences list so we have no idea when it comes to Kuznetsov who was so good for the Capitals in that 2018 postseason run and Samsonov who was supposed to be the goaltender of the future where things stand with those guys in terms of their availabilities for the Stanley Cup playoffs there is of course the goaltending storyline for the Caps what is the goaltending situation going to be I mean it was very much a timeshare during the regular season between Samsonov and Vitek Vanacek presumably this is Vitek Vanacek series because we don't know where things stand with Samsonov. Uh head coach Peter Laviolette on Thursday was not saying what the goaltending plan is. He said the team is keeping the plan internal, which is classic Peter Laviolette. And you know, I don't blame him, right? Why tell the world what you're gonna be doing at goaltender? But who's gonna be playing And how is whoever is going to be playing going to be playing? I mean, it matters a lot what your goaltending is in the Stanley Cup playoffs. If, in fact, this is Vanacek's series, he's got to be on. He had an up-and-down season. Same for Samsonov. Are the Capitals going to get quality goaltending, or are the Caps going to be ruined by whoever ends up being their goaltender? That's a huge question going into this series. There's the Zdeno Chara storyline. What a job Chara has done for the Caps this season. What is his age? 43 seasons. Zdeno Chara was taken by the New York Islanders in the third round of the 1996 NHL entry draft. Think about that. 1996. uh, The Capitals didn't sign Chara until super deep in the offseason. December 30th was when the Caps announced the signing of Chara, a one-year 795 thousand dollar contract he has been durable he has been reliable for the caps as a defenseman this off him of course having been a fixture for the Bruins Chara had been the longest tenured captain in the NHL he was the Boston Bruins captain for all of his 14 seasons with the team 2006 2007 through 2019 2020 speaking of guys who used to be with one team now are with the other we have the Bruce Cassidy storyline. Bruce Butch Cassidy is the Bruins head coach. He was the Caps head coach for less than one and a half seasons many years ago. The Caps hired Cassidy in June 2002 off his success as a minor league head coach. He was 37 years old at the time of the hiring. He was in way over his head. All kinds of stuff came out about his head coaching tenure with the Caps after he got fired. Now, his first season with the Caps actually did end up being a good one, at least in the regular season. Caps went 39, 29, 8 and 6, finished with 92 points, one point behind the Southeast Division champion, Tampa Bay Lightning. The Caps, though, lost to the Lightning in the first round of the 2003 Stanley Cup playoffs, blowing a 2-0 series lead by losing each of the final four games, including a game I will never forget, a 4-3 triple overtime loss in game six. On Easter Sunday, 2003, Martin San louis scoring the game-winning and series-clinching goal. San louis torched the Caps in that series, had five goals and four assists in the series. Then came the 2003-2004 season. Caps got off to a terrible 8-18, 1-1 start, fired Cassidy in December 2003, but he has completely changed the narrative on him as an NHL head coach. Cassidy, all spending five seasons as the head coach of Providence, the Bruins' American Hockey League affiliate, named head coach of the Bruins after Claude Julien was fired February 2017. Cassidy has gotten the Bruins of the postseason multiple times. Cassidy got the Bruins to the 2019 Stanley Cup final. Cassidy won a conference championship with the Boston Bruins as head coach. Uh, in terms of the matchup, Caps and Bruins were two of the best teams in the NHL in the regular season in terms of special teams. Each team was top 10 in both power play efficiency and penalty kill efficiency. Capitals were third in the NHL in power play efficiency, fifth in the NHL in penalty kill efficiency. Bruins were ninth in the NHL in power play efficiency, second in the NHL in penalty kill efficiency. So this is a battle of good versus good, strength versus strength. Caps, great power play. Bruins, great penalty kill Caps, very good penalty kill. Bruins, good power play. So which matchup wins out? Hard to say. Remember the thing with the Caps and their power play? Yes, the Caps finished third in the NHL in power play efficiency in the regular season. But the Caps also allowed in the NHL worst eight shorthanded goals. God help us if the Caps give up a shorthanded goal in this series. Few things in sports are worse than when your hockey team gives up a shorthanded goal. There's also this to keep in mind. The Bruins in the regular season were elite In terms of puck possession, the Caps finished the regular season 12th in the NHL in 5-on-5 shot attempt percentage. The Bruins finished the regular season 3rd in the NHL in 5-on-5 shot attempt percentage. Look, at the end of the day, this is hockey, and it can be a fluky random sport. You can do all of the analysis that you want, but if the rubber puck bounces off one guy's stick and then goes off another guy's skate and then goes into your net, none of the analysis matters, okay? If your goaltender is struggling, but the pucks getting past him are hitting posts and crossbars as opposed to going into nets, then you're good. You know, puck luck matters maybe more than anything. I want the Caps to have another deep postseason run in the Alex Ovechkin era. It is criminal that the Caps have only made it past the second round one time during the Ovechkin era, even though that one time was 2018 when the Caps won the Cup. I do think that this Caps team is capable of making it past the second round. I will take the Caps to win the series in seven games, as I do believe that this series will be similar to the last time the Caps played the Bruins in a series in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Cause remember, the Caps did play the Bruins in one of those three Stanley Cup qualifier games last postseason. But do you remember that last time? 2012 Stanley Cup playoffs, first round. The Caps defeated the Bruins in seven games. This series was about as close as a series can ever be. The series went seven games. Every game in the series, was decided by one goal. Four of the seven games in the series were overtime games. The Caps head coach at the time was interim head coach Dale Hunter. Uh, the Caps were a super defensive minded team with Dale Hunter as head coach. The series in a lot of ways remember was Braden Holtby's coming out party. Holtby played in just seven games in the 2011-2012 regular season. He started all seven games in this series and was masterful. A 940 save percentage for the Beast against the Bruins in the first round of the 2012 Stanley Cup playoffs. And included in the mix were some epic performances. Holtby and the Caps' 2-1 double overtime win in Game 2 stopped 43 of the 44 shots on goal that he faced. Holtby and the Caps' 2-1 win in Game 4 stopped 44 of the 45 shots on goal that he faced. Holtby and the Caps 2-1 overtime win in Game 7 stopped 31 of the 32 shots on goal that he faced. So going back to goaltending, right? A goaltender who maybe didn't do much in the regular season or maybe wasn't great in the regular season, that goaltender can rise to the occasion come the postseason. Holtby did it in 2012. Hopefully Vitek Vanacek does it this postseason or Ilya Samsonov if he ends up playing. The other thing, too, about that caps Bruins series in 12, of course, was Joel Ward, who scored the series-winning goal in overtime, Game 7, being subjected to racist tweets by Boston fans. Way to go, Boston. Great job there. All right, now to our special guest. All right, as we continue to prepare for Capitals-Bruins, first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast, Peter Hassett, co-founder of Russian Machine Never Breaks, which it's an outstanding blog about the Capitals. I read it all the time, have for years. I've been having Peter come on my shows for years to talk Caps, especially whenever the Stanley Cup playoffs are about to begin. And here we are again, another postseason for the Caps. Peter, great to talk to you again, man. How are you?
1: I'm doing excellent. I'm looking forward to the game. Thank you, Al.
2: Yeah, uh, no doubt. Before we get to the matchup with the Bruins, Caps in the just-concluded regular season go 36-15-5, including, interestingly, an NHL best 19-1-5, in one-goal games, you're very good with the analytics and sort of interpreting, okay, what's real, what's maybe not as real. Were the Caps as good as their overall record suggested they were in the regular season, in your opinion? I think they were a a very
1: good team. I I don't know if they were necessarily the best team in their division or or the best team in the East necessarily, but obviously with that many one-goal games, a lot does come up to like random chance a little bit. But a lot of the team's underlying numbers were pretty solid. Defensively, they were doing excellent. They certainly have weaknesses. I think they you know allowed way too many odd man rushes against, too many shorthanded goals. I think they were near the top of the league in how many shorthanded goals they allowed, uh, and you know goaltending remains suspect. But I think that that record's relatively honest. Obviously, it's been a really weird year with the the pandemic and the shortened season, lots of absences. But I, I think that the Capitals, if they are a healthy team, are probably better than a lot of people think they are, maybe better than the record.
2: That's great to hear. In watching the Caps, in digesting the numbers, what would you say impressed you the most about the Caps during the regular season?
1: Oh, that's a great point. Um, I think it's their defensive uh, uh, stoutness. They found a way, I guess this is the the Peter Labulette system, uh, to keep a lot of shots outside of the crease. So, you know, they had two young goaltenders in uh, Ilya Samsonov and uh, Vitek Vanacek. And those rookie goalies didn't see a lot of high-danger shots, a lot of really close-up action. Uh, I think that's probably the best defense that we've seen out of the Washington Capitals since maybe 2017. Uh, really, really good performance uh, from the, their team defense. And it didn't necessarily show up in their goals against numbers. But, uh, you know, maybe that will help them out when they get into a,
2: you know, a, a, a possibly seven-game series against Boston's very good top six. Yeah, no doubt. I know there have been questions about the Capitals when it comes to defensemen for a few years. This defensive success in the regular season, more about Laviolette's system or about the defensemen getting better, in your opinion? Uh, let's let's give
1: it a little bit of both. Sedano um, O'Chara had some trouble getting started early in the season, but once he settled in, he'd been excellent. Uh, uh, Justin Schultz, um, has been a fantastic pickup, uh, and he he really has a good ability to be like a, a kind of low-key puck distributor that did a lot to like stabilize whatever pairing he's on, whether it was with Orlov or Carlson. Um, one player that even the, the Caps themselves slept on was uh, Trevor Van Riemsdyk, who had been really, really solid and done a, done a lot to help Brendan Dillon, uh, a particular um, become a better defenseman, get better on ice numbers. I think that that roster, the defensive roster, is way better than people might think. Uh they, There's you know, not a lot of like stars there outside of John Carlson, but they have put up a, a fantastic defensive effort. Um I, I, I think they're a, a pretty good defensive team, and I would probably lean more on the talent than I would on the coaching on that front.
2: You mentioned Chara. It really was something else. Age 43 season, the Caps acquired him in late December, and yet he became a staple for the Capitals along the blue line. I mean, Trevor Van Riemsdyk, you almost forgot he was on the team for a good chunk of the season. Did the Caps play Zdeno Chara too much, or was it appropriate him playing as much as he ended up playing in the regular season?
1: Uh, There's a reason why that guy has stuck in the league for as long as he is. Uh, uh, He is in fantastic shape, (laughs) and... I would probably say that uh, I would have preferred if he got a couple games rest. I prefer a lot of players got some rest. But uh, Chara did not disappoint. I don't think he was a weak point any time after those first 10, 15 games. And boy, am I glad he's uh, on the roster. You know, late in the season when the the team was a little bit banged up, he was
2: uh, a rock there playing pretty big minutes for a a fella in his 40s. No doubt. I mean, you look at the offseason Brian McClellan ended up having with Chara and Connor Sheary. I mean, what a job. He ended up doing, talking with Peter Hassett, co-founder of Russian Machine Never Breaks, the great Capitals blog. So uh, first round series against Boston, you wrote a great piece for Russian Machine Never Breaks, essentially saying that the Caps got the short straw. It's a super difficult matchup in the Bruins. Why do you feel this way? Uh,
1: since the trade deadline, just about really since they acquired Taylor Hall, the Boston Bruins have been probably the most scary team in the NHL. They, with that Bergeron line and then with the Taylor Hall line, they've got probably the best top six I can think of in the NHL outside of maybe Edmonton. Uh, they have run the table uh, in, in a lot of their games down the stretch. The only reason that we may you know, see that there may be some good luck there is that they were playing a lot of games against like the Buffalo Sabres, who were not great, obviously, down the stretch either. Uh but I think I think the Boston Bruins, especially if they've got two Carrasco, two shut up in the last month, if they've got uh um if they've got if their team is as good as their record looked and their underlying numbers looked over the last month and they've got a healthy goalies, they're definitely, you know, a very scary team to, to go up against and I would have preferred the Capitals got Pittsburgh or the New York Islanders. That didn't happen. So they're going to have to
2: roll the hard six and beat the good team. So with the goaltending, we, of course, have no idea what the availability of Ilya Samsonov will be. But assuming he's available at some point, which Caps goaltender have you liked better this season, Samsonov or Vitek Vanacek? I
1: didn't like either, necessarily. Um, I would lean slightly towards Vitek Vanacek because he's stayed healthier uh, and had maybe really close but uh, you know, maybe marginally better numbers. Um, but yeah, this is definitely the Capitals' weak spot. Um, I think Vitek Vanacek has sort of won the starting spot by default just because he didn't you know, get to to the taxi squad and get presumably back onto the COVID protocols in the last couple of weeks like, like Samsonov did. Um, but it's definitely not a strong spot for the Washington Capitals right now. Uh, maybe these rookie goalies can sort of show up in a big moment like they haven't yet. And, and prove themselves, but if there's one thing that I'm
2: worried about um, beyond injuries, it would be the the young goalies that they've got behind the team. Do you think Peter Laviolette wants to just ride one guy? Do you think he alternates in the postseason as Laviolette did in the regular season? What do you think Laviolette's approach ends up being?
1: Let, let's assume that like Samsonov's back and, and ready to be played.
2: Yeah. I think it's
1: uh in a check net until he loses it. Uh, and if he loses it the next guy has a chance but i don't see any cha- uh, any likelihood that uh he will just do a platoon approach i think that the team is uh maybe soured a bit on their trust on Ilya samsonov uh and i i am not confident that he'll see the net again this season
2: yeah so you just maybe just answer my next question but i was going to ask you about that i mean samsonov for years like was the guy was the highly touted prospect and then over the last what 12 months you've had the atv thing in russia You've had multiple COVID-19 induced absences. He was late to that team function with Evgeny Kuznetsov. I mean, do you think the bloom is off the rose with Samsonov? Do you think there's still a chance he becomes the franchise goaltender he was drafted to be?
1: It's it's really unlikely, but if he's healthy, available and Vitek Vanacek blows it, and then at Samsonov shows up in a way that he has not yet over his, you know, still short young career, uh, he could certainly win, win his spot back. But, uh, it's hard to imagine squandering the opportunity more than he has over the last you know year and a half. I well, obviously don't blame him for you know, catching COVID that first time, but uh, he's you know been a little bit of a rule breaker. Yes. and the <laughs> the, the off season accidents and the you know violations of, of team rules or what have you, or you know league rules, or what have you, um, have have. May have been acceptable if he were putting up amazing numbers, but he's been a thoroughly average goalie, slightly below average in, in some respects. And he has not differentiated himself at all above me take check, except in the
2: bad way. Talking with Peter Hassett, co-founder of Russian Machine never break. So Alex Ovechkin, it was kind of an interesting season with him, right? Missing time because of COVID-19, then missing time with the rare Ovechkin injury. For a while, wasn't scoring goals. Then the goals started to come in a lot of games in which he didn't score. He still had, you know, very high shot numbers, some good puck possession numbers as well. Uh, if you had to kind of bottom line the regular season that Ovechkin had, what would you say? How would you describe it?
1: Uh, incredibly weird, just like most of the rest of the NHL. Obviously, he didn't have numbers like you saw. Um, Austin Matthews put up in, in Toronto or anything like that, but when he was on, he was on. Uh, the old Ovi is still, you know, available, uh, if, he, if he, he, you know, has the opportunity. I think that the, what he's missing most is his power play opportunities. Those are really the, the, the one timers from the, uh, the OV spot, the office there. Uh, just haven't been coming like they should have been, and that hurt his, his goal numbers. Uh, I don't think that he's get, you know, had a season to scoff that at all, but he, I'm sure he, you know, with misses that he had the opportunity to get another Rocky Richard trophy. Um, that said, uh, I think that if, if he is indeed healthy and I'm not sure what his, his exact health status is, but he didn't look bad at all on that. Um, that, that regular season finale, if, if he is, you know, ready to play, I would say, uh, he, you know, he could have just another, uh, legendary Ovechkin postseason, uh, But yeah, this this is probably a season to forget, Uh, not because of a flagging effort his part, but just because of
2: the weirdness that, you know, made up the COVID year. No doubt. With Peter Laviolette, obviously his first season with the Caps has to deal with a lot in the way of absences and injury. You know, the record is what it was, which was very good, you know, 7-0-0 during the Tom Wilson suspension back in March, that kind of a thing. Has Laviolette been just what the Caps needed off what went down with Todd Reardon, or do you still have questions about Laviolette?
1: I like Peter Laviolette in a lot of ways. Um, he has been, like we said, he, he's been, managed to get a very sturdy defensive effort out of the team. Uh, he hasn't been very exciting. And I don't know if that's uh, a problem for him. It's a problem for me as a fan and as a, as a person who likes to write about the team. Um, but he does tend to turtle to like sort of get a little shy when the Caps have a lead, uh, and we've seen a lot of leads get blown. Um, the the, the team trouble keeping the puck out of their net when they've got a close lead um, but I, I think he's been a, a positive coach overall I, I wasn't too down on Todd Reardon obviously what happened in the, the bubble in the playoffs last season was sort of unacceptable on a number of fronts and his dismissal was sort of inevitable but uh, Todd Reardon uh, it was it was time for him to go I, I think that the Capitals were right at that point and Peter Lagulette has been stable and present in all the ways that you expect uh, a, a coach to be with you know his level of Pedigree. That said, um, I do think that he's a little bit of a uh, he's a little bit of a defensively stout guy and doesn't necessarily have the sort of like offensive uh, excitement. The Caps sort of need a little bit of a shot in the arm and offense sometimes, especially on that power play where they really could use some different looks um, with the, the puck up high. But I, I think overall, uh, you know, Peter Laviolette gets like a, a B
2: minus, B flat. Two big-picture questions I want to get your takes on. So since winning the 2018 Stanley Cup Championship, you've had back-to-back first-round exits in the postseason. It remains that that 2018 Cup run is the only time the Caps in the Alex Ovechkin era made it past the second round. For you as a passionate Capitals fan, did winning the Cup make the rest of the Ovechkin era house money? Or do you feel like more needs to be accomplished to not validate the Ovechkin era, but to make it okay? You know what they did, realistically speaking, all they could with this all-time great player.
1: Any time that they've got a, a crack at the title, uh, my my expectations are that they go for it. You know, so I think that the Capitals are legitimately, if they're healthy, huge asterisk on that one. Um, they they are a good enough team to win the Stanley Cup. They're not favorites. They're not you know. Contenders like people might think of it, but they've got an outside shot at it. Um, whether my, I, I, after so many years of disappointment prior to the 2018 Cup win, I've come to sort of get beyond, you know, expectations or demands of the team in one way or the other. I'm just sort of, uh, happy to, for the, for the ride, for the experience when I get it. Um, I would just like to see, uh, can, you know, get his chance to like, crack the Gretzky record on an individual, on an individual level. For the team as a, you know, broader unit. I think they can win the Stanley Cup this year. I really do. Um, I, I would be very disappointed if it's a first round exit, but I wouldn't be surprised. I would be very surprised if it's a cup win, but I would sure be delighted.
2: Yes, that would be nice. I always bring this up on the podcast with Ovi chasing Gretzky. Ovi long ago surpassed Gretzky in the hockeyreference.com adjusted goals metric. And I, I think, like, to me, that's significant because Gretzky played in an entirely different offensive environment. You could argue Ovechkin's already proven himself to be a better goal scorer than Gretzky.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the world in which Gretzky scored, you know, his obscene totals of goals were, uh, are a league where there were a lot more goals available to be scored. Yeah. That just isn't the case in, in our today's NHL. Uh, and Ovechkin is a one-of-a-kind player, not a once-a-generation player, but just a, a one-of-a-kind player in the same degree that, that Gretzky was. Oh. Uh, he definitely belongs sort of that pantheon next to, you know, him and, and Lemieux. Still, it would be good to have them beat that that record for all the normies out there that don't appreciate
2: them the way we do. I love that word, the normies. All right, final question. I appreciate your time. So it really is remarkable the frequency with which the Capitals have made the Stanley Cup playoffs. Seventh consecutive postseason appearance, 13th postseason appearance over the last 14 years. And if you really big picture it, 31st playoff appearance in 38 seasons. Do you look at the Caps and say to yourself, They're positioned to keep this going for years to come. Like even when Ovechkin and Backstrom fade away, the Caps can maybe do the San Antonio Spurs thing where it's just like a new generation of guys, but the postseason appearances keep coming. Or do you see the end in the horizon and that, you know what, after another year or two, the Caps may be in trouble in terms of becoming old and and becoming a non-postseason team. How do you kind of view the Caps big picture?
1: Oh, yeah, this is not going to be a, this is not going to be a sunny picture here. Uh, the, we, we may be looking Towards the end of Washington's ability to make the postseason with any regularity, it's been pretty miraculous that they've been able to pull it off. I mean, with the exception of one really poor Adam Oates coach season, they've made it every year since what, 27, sorry, 2007, uh, to the, the playoffs. Uh, they've been, they've been a fantastic team. Some of that they may have been lifted up by like a relatively weak division. That certainly hasn't been the case in the last couple of years. Uh, pretty much every team in the in like the the Metro or the Mass Mutual East, as it is this season, has been really competitive. But you know, Ovechkin will eventually have age catch up to him. Nicholas Backstrom has you know slowed down, and and they've had to see some middling talent sort of go west with your Jacob Ronas and your Andrei and Those players don't have easy replacements. Um, if they can keep finding goals where goals are hard to be found, like they have with Daniel Sprong and uh, and Connor Sheary. Then yeah, they can keep squeaking in and and competing, and I'm sure that's what Telefantes wants to do. You get those extra games, get those that that excitement in springtime every year. But it's going to get harder as time moves on, and there's no guarantee that the Capitals won't sort of have their hand forced to have to do you know the the R word, the the
2: rebuild. Yeah, it's it's a frightening thing to consider. But in the meantime, like you were saying, let's enjoy this, and hopefully another deep run is coming up here for the Capitals and the Stanley Cup playoffs. Peter Hassett, a must-read on Russian Machine Never Breaks. Love talking Caps with you, man. All the best to you. Appreciate it. Thanks, yeah. The Nationals mercifully avoided a three-game sweep to Bryce Harper and the Philadelphia Phillies on Thursday afternoon. A 5-1 win over the Phillies at Nationals Park to at least get a game in the three-game series. And that's winning for just the second time in nine games. There just have not been many wins for the Nationals recently and you know on the whole this season I mean that's now even with the win on Thursday afternoon just 14 and 19 on the season that still do have a disturbing run differential as well minus 20 on the season that is the fourth worst run differential in the national league although interestingly the Atlanta Braves actually have a worse run differential than that of the Nats Braves are 17 and 20 but have a minus 21 run differential on the season. I mean, things could be worse for the Nationals, but they also could be a lot better. But this game on Thursday afternoon is a reminder of the better perhaps coming sooner rather than later. A lot went well for the Nationals in this game on Thursday. And it just kind of tells you, you know what, the Nationals are capable of better as compared to what we've seen so far this year. Patrick Corbin was great. The Nationals got two two two-run homers from two guys, two newcomers who've been struggling for the most part this season. Like, there was a lot to like with this game. I think Corbin is where you start. Patrick Corbin had his best start of the season. He was terrific. One run in seven innings, nine strikeouts versus five hits, which were a double and four singles and no walks on 102 pitches, 70 of which were strikes. Corbin has had a problem at times this season and last season throwing strikes. He did not have that problem on Thursday afternoon. 70 strikes versus 32 balls. Now, what was interesting with this start is that things did not start off well. For Corbin. Uh, Corbin allowed a run in the top of the first on a leadoff double by Andrew McCutcheon on a 1-2 pitch, a one out single by Bryce Harper on a 1-2 pitch, and then a two out double steal that included McCutcheon stealing home for a one nothing Phillies lead. Now, the double steal really wasn't fortunate because Corbin had Harper picked off between first and second, but Josh Bell's throw home was high, causing Jan Gomes to make a leaping catch, and so McCutcheon was safe on a steal of home. That really should have been out number three and Josh Bell made a bad throw. You know, you could argue Bell should have been charged with a throwing error. That's why you can't just go by errors when it comes to defense. Bell doesn't get an error on that play, and yet he was responsible for the run scoring. That was a bad throw that Bell made to Jan Gomez. But still, Corbin did put McCutcheon on base with the lead off double, did put Harper on base with the one-out single. But after that, Corbin was lights out, perfect top of the third, struck out Harper on four pitches, for the third out, perfect top of the six, struck out Harper on four pitches, struck out Reese Hoskins on five pitches. This was Corbin's seventh start this season. He was terrible over the first two starts, allowing 15 earned runs in six into third innings. But since then, while he hasn't necessarily been, you know, Cy Young Corbin, he has been a lot better. And the bottom line is Patrick Corbin now, over his last five starts since the two bad starts to begin his season, has given up 10 earned runs in thirty innings. That works out to an ERA of three. That's more like it. That's the Patrick Corbin the Nats had in two thousand nineteen. ERA of three over his last five starts, during which he has twenty three strikeouts versus seven walks. I wouldn't say that Corbin has been fixed. I think you still want to see some more, but the general trend here is up. And the general trend here is again back to the Corbin the Nats had in twenty nineteen as opposed to the Corbin who struggled so much last season and then over those first two starts of this season. So great job by Patrick Corbin on Thursday. Also, great job by the Nationals bullpen. Three Nats relievers combining for two scoreless innings. Now, Tanner Rainey did have some issues. He faced three batters, got just one out, gave up a leadoff full count, pinch double to Brad Miller, followed by a six-pitch walk of Andrew McCutcheon, but then Daniel Hudson came into the game and what a season Hudson is in the midst of having comes into the game in a tight spot runners on first and second. That's our leading five one, but just one out in the top of the eighth inning and Hudson acts as the fireman, retires the two batters he faces, strikes out Harper on eight pitches, then retires Hoskins on a ground out for the third out. Daniel Hudson, who was really bad last season, really bad in the 2021 exhibition season has been Dominant so far this regular season. His ERA now is 159. Two runs in 11 and the third innings. 13 strikeouts. Just a tremendous job by Hudson. And I love Davey Martinez going to Hudson in that spot. You know, now Hudson, I know he has been the eighth inning guy for the most part this season. But, you know, 5-1 game, maybe Davey's looking to get some other guys some work. Like, no, Davey fires his fireman in that spot. And Hudson came through once again. I mean, you can make the case Daniel Hudson has been the Nationals' best reliever this season. Daniel Hudson, you could argue, has been the Nationals' ace reliever so far this year. And he delivered once again on Thursday afternoon. And then Austin Voth pitched. And Voth, again, was very good. Tossed a perfect top of the ninth and included striking out Alec Boehm on four pitches for the first out. Austin Voth now, this season, has an ERA of 1.15. Two runs in 15 and two-thirds innings. 17 strikeouts. Here's the truth. The two best Nationals relievers this season have been Daniel Hudson and Austin Voth, especially with Brad Hand's recent struggles. But these are who have been the two most dominant relievers for the Nationals on the season. Raise your hand if you expected this. Daniel Hudson, I mean, I know he was good for the Nats in 2019 upon the Nats trading form, but again, bad in 2020, bad this past exhibition season. And Austin Voth, a failed starter, who was out of minor league options, makes the team as a reliever, in theory was just here to be a long reliever, maybe even a mop-up guy. And instead, he's more and more taking on high leverage appearances. And he's been arguably the best reliever for the Nationals so far this season. Statistically speaking, he has been the Nationals' best reliever so far this season. So great job by Hudson and both. And more and more, I think we should be seeing these guys in the highest of leverage spots. Like, I'm not saying you abandon Brad Hand But this to me is why you shouldn't designate guys with different titles of you're my closer, you're my setup guy. I know these people are human beings and they want to know their roles, but as a manager, you just want a bunch of outgetters in your bullpen. And so if one guy's hot, you ride that guy. And if then he cools off and you want to go to somebody else, you go ahead and do that. Enough with the hurt feelings, enough with the attachments to roles and just fire your best bullets when it comes to your bullpen And the beauty of what the Nats have with this bullpen this season is the Nationals have depth. They do have options. If Hand can get back on track, which I think he will. I mean, he's had three straight bad outings. That's not good. It is a little concerning. But uh, he also looked very good prior to this recent stretch with the three bad outings. You've got many different options you can go to here with this bullpen. Especially, too, if Tanner Rainey finally finds himself. And it's been an up-and-down start to his 2021 season. All right, the Nationals lineup. Davey again tinkered with the Nats lineup. Every game is something different with the Nationals lineup this season. It's really been remarkable. I don't blame Davey for doing this. It's just funny to see. It's never the same lineup over two consecutive games. So Davey on Thursday afternoon had Trey Turner back in the leadoff spot. So the Andrew Stevenson thing lasted for one game. Josh Harrison in the number two spot. Juan Soto batted third. Kyle Schwarber batted fourth. Starling Castro batted fifth. Josh Bell batted sixth. Davey again did the thing, which I can't stand, of batting the pitcher eighth and a position player ninth. Victor Robles was back as a starting center fielder. He batted ninth and Corbin batted eighth. I can't stand this. I don't like pitchers batting. When you bat pitchers higher, they get more plate appearances over the course of the season. And specific to Thursday afternoon's game, this cost the Nationals because Patrick Corbin came up in a big spot, came up with the bases loaded in two outs in the bottom of the sixth off a two-out intentional walk of Jan Gomes. And sure enough, what happened? Patrick Corbin, in another thrilling installment of a pitcher batting, struck out, on four pitches, okay? This is why you don't bat the pitcher eighth, because something like this can happen. You, if you, you know, you have to bat the pitcher in the National League. We don't have a universal DH. Hopefully that changes, but for now, pitcher's still hit. Bat the pitcher ninth. That's the way to handle the pitcher batting. You don't put the pitcher eighth, because it sets yourself up for exactly what happened to the Nationals in that bottom of the six on Thursday afternoon. The Phillies were able to intentionally walk Gomes to get to Corbin, and Corbin, of course, didn't have a shot and he struck out on four pitches with the bases loaded and two outs. But the Nationals did have a four-run first inning that featured two two two-run homers, those coming from Kyle Schwarber and Josh Bell. It was really interesting to see that happen. The two newcomers who have largely been major flops so far this season, each guy delivering in that four-run bottom of the first. And let me say this about Kyle Schwarber. He has been on the rise in recent games, and maybe, just maybe, Kyle Schwarber is finally busting out. So Schwarber on Thursday afternoon as a starting left fielder and number four batter went two of four with a homer and a single. He had a two out, two run homer in the Nats four run first. He had a one out single in the Nats one run six. Schwarber was the Nats starting left fielder in all three games in the series, during which he went three for 11 with a homer, two singles, a walk, and a hit by pitch. Kyle Schwarber now over his last seven games has raised his OPS by 94 points now the OPS was really low he was at 572 but he's now got that up to 666 that's a pretty good run you raise your OPS by 94 points over a seven game stretch even this early in the season the overall numbers still really bad for Schwarber but it has been good to see him do some good things here lately and hopefully we are in the midst of again Schwarber busting out and becoming the hitter we know he can be look he's not you know an all-world batter but he's certainly better than what he's shown himself to be so far this season and then with Josh Bell number six batter was he on Thursday afternoon one for three with a two-run homer and that was a great homer two out first pitch two-run bomb in the Nationals four-run first inning I am not going to do the thing of hey maybe Josh Bell is busting out like we'll see we have a ways to go the homer was just his 12th hit of the season but it is a reminder of what Josh Bell can be and what he was in a big 2019 season for the Pittsburgh Pirates also another good game for Starling Castro. He was a number five batter for the Nats on Thursday afternoon. Two for three with an RBI double, a single, and a walk. He had a two-out, five-pitch walk in the Nats' four-run first, a leadoff single on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the fourth, and a one-out RBI double in the Nats' one-run sixth inning in a rare instance of Starling Castro providing an extra base hit. Castro has had a lot of hits so far this season, but almost all of them have been single. Starling Castro, as we speak on this Friday, has 38 hits on the season, 29 of the 38 hits have been singles. Like you talk about singling teams, nickel and diming teams, paper cutting teams to death. That's what Starling Castro tries to do. He was the starting third baseman for the Nats in all three games in the series. And Castro's in his own right now. He in the series went seven for 12 with the double, six singles and a walk. He's not hitting for power on the year. He's only slugging 398, but he's batting now 309 on the season. And he has a 356 on base percentage on the season. You know, for all the angst over who should be leading off for the Nationals, if David Martinez really truly just isn't going to go back to Victor Robles, how about Starling Castro? 309 batting average, 356 on base. You know, that plays. How about that guy in the number one spot? I mean, he's not necessarily someone who takes a lot of pitches, but he's getting on base. And ultimately, that's what you want From your leadoff batter, someone who gets on base, so your two best hitters batting in the numbers two and three spots can drive that guy in. So if you go Castro one, Trey Turner two, Juan Soto three, or even Castro one, Soto two, Turner three, I think that might be a way to go. For all of the tinkering David Martinez has done with the lineup, he has yet to try out Castro in the leadoff spot. I think David should give that a long, hard look instead of constantly altering that top of the lineup. Like, you know, it'd be nice to settle into something and let guys kind of grow in those roles. You know, Castro is not an ideal leadoff guy. I mean, Castro, it's an indictment of the Nationals lineup that we talk him up as being one of the real bright spots, but he is doing a good job right now. Again, 356 on base, that plays. So how about letting that play with Castro as a leadoff batter? You know, I mentioned Soto. So Soto on Thursday afternoon, one for four with a single, had a one-out single, in the Nats one run six inning. He was the Nats starting right fielder in all three games in the series. It's not like he had a bad series. He went three of 10 with three singles and four walks, but Soto has not been himself since coming off the 10 day injured list. He came off that on May 4th, had been on the 10 day IL since April 20th with the left shoulder strain. Perhaps he's still dealing with some things, uh, off the left shoulder strain, but here is the Juan Soto slash line since he came off the 10 day IL. Batting average of 200. On base percentage of 355, slugging percentage of 320. I mean, the on base percentage is good, although by Soto standards, it's not that good. But the batting average stinks, 200, and the slugging percentage stinks at 320. Now, am I worried about Juan Soto? No, not really. He's still Juan Soto, but that that is something to uh, keep in mind with all of the Nationals' recent offensive struggles. One thing that also has been a reason is Juan Soto has not been Juan Soto, at least not yet. You know, got to get. Juan Soto back to where we, of course, know he can be. Trey Turner, number one batter on Thursday afternoon, did go 0 for 4 with two strikeouts, but ultimately did have a good series. Starting shortstop in all three games, 4-13 with a homer, a double, two singles, and a walk. Next up for the Nats, a seven-game road trip. Three games at the Arizona Diamondbacks, followed by four games at the Chicago Cubs. Game one at the Diamondbacks, late night on Friday night, a 9 first pitch. Max Scherzer is expected to start coming off another gem in his last outing. Scherzer was spectacular in that 4-3, 11-inning loss at the New York Yankees last Saturday. One run in seven and a third innings, 14 strikeouts. The 14 strikeouts, a single game record for an opposing pitcher at the new Yankee Stadium, which opened in 2009. Now, Max in that game was pitching on five days of rest as opposed to four. He'll be doing the same thing in this start on Friday night at one of his former team's and the Diamondbacks, right? You count days of rest beginning with the first day after your last start. So for Max, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that's five days of rest that he's had going into the start on Friday night. So I think we're gonna see another dominant performance from Scherzer. I mean, any start by Scherzer is a potential dominant outing, I understand that. But Scherzer is in a really good way right now. He has over his seven starts, an ERA of 233, a whip of 0.78, and how about his strikeouts versus his walks? 61 strikeouts versus seven walks. Diamondbacks are not a very good team. But remember, the Diamondbacks did split with the Nationals over the course of a four-game series at Nationals Park. Going,
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast.
2: through April 18th. Diamondbacks were kind of an annoying pesky team in that series as Drupal Cabrera, the former NAD, has been the Diamondbacks number three batter this season just to give you an idea of what you're dealing with. So this should be a series that the Nationals win but we know the way things have gone for the Nationals so far. But given just losing two or three, to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park, given losing two or three at the New York Yankees last weekend, given being swept by the Atlanta Braves over the course of three games last week, it sure would be nice for the Nationals to get at least two or three at the Diamondbacks going into the four-game series at the Chicago Cubs next week. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfer sometimes three putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash Al now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care. For ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home, a U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to getroman.com/algaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to getroman.com/algaldi now to get fifteen dollars off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. Getroman.com/algaldi. Get started now to save fifteen dollars on your first month of treatment. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. We're going to have a lot to get into on Monday's installment of the Al Goldie Podcast. Rookie mini camp practices for the Washington Football Team on Friday and Saturday, with Ron Rivera speaking after each practice. Capitals, Boston Bruins at Capital One Arena in Game One in the first round of the Stanley Cup Playoffs on Saturday night. The Wizards have their final two regular season games this weekend, still looking to clinch the final spot in the Eastern Conference play-in tournament. No Bradley Beal, by the way, for the Wiz against the Cleveland Cavaliers at Capital One Arena on Friday night. Third consecutive game he'll be missing due to the left hamstring strain. Nationals have their three-game series at the Arizona Diamondbacks. Max Scherzer pitching on Friday night. The Orioles have a three-game series against the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. The weekend, always a good chance to catch up on anything you may have missed On the podcast, really good stuff from former Washington tight end Logan Paulson on Washington's tight end and quarterback situations and much more. He joined me on Wednesday's show, episode 61, in-depth analysis of the Washington football team's 2021 regular season schedule and signing of Charles Leno Jr. That was on Thursday's show, episode 62. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. You can act like a man. What's the matter with you?